you are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today we're getting into the last short story from Disease of Ambition entitled Patrick. I don't know how I got that name, but I am Patrick Attaway and I am your host for today's edition of the podcast and I am interviewing W.B. Welch next week. I don't know if I said in the last podcast that it would be this week. I think I was mistaken because I don't know what a calendar is, but it's next week. Next week's episode, if everything works out okay. And I'm looking forward to it. I read W.B. Welch's novella that's coming out, Rose's Gold, and I quite enjoyed it. I don't want to spoil anything, but it's not like her other work that I've read. In fact, there's an element of horror to it, for sure, but it's very mysterious and unique. It's like a self-mystery sort of thing. And it, it I won't spoil the ending, of course, that would be so rude, but it... It all makes sense in the end once you get there. But I've also been really interested in my family's genealogy. I've been researching that as best as I can from my ass on my seat. And I discovered that the Attaways are from England. Now, when I was growing up, my dad would tell me that we were from either Scotland or Ireland or we were Scot-Irish and his answer would change, but what I found was that we were never in Scotland, up until the 1500s at least. We had some family that were in Wales, for sure. One of my family members was born in Austria, but to English parents who were just in Austria at the time, back in 1608. But uh, it's interesting. I'm getting into another family history, not the Attaways, but one of my maternal families and I am trying to dig deeper because my grandmother always claimed that her grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee Native American or she would say full-blooded Cherokee Indian and that's not true as I have I have discovered um, I was really interested in that story because I didn't want to find out that I was the product of uh, an ancient rape somewhere because when I, whenever I hear about someone talking about their grandmother or something being Native American, all I can imagine is that they were either kidnapped from their tribe or they were raped or something like that and forced into marriage. Especially the way that my grandmother described that marriage because she said that her grandmother died while her father was still a child, which is also not true from what I, I discovered, but I'm not here to argue with her, okay? She's not even going to listen to this. But our family histories are, are more interesting than I was giving them credit for, and what I found is is intriguing me. I'd like to find out more. I'd like to know stories and where all these people, you know, what they were doing 
in those those time periods. What was my family doing in the 1500s in England? I was just on the Jazz House podcast with Dana Brown and Alexa Rose, also known as Lexi. And Lexi is very endearing and charming, and Dana is is awesome as always. I've been following her on Twitter for a long time now, and she's always been very supportive. And she welcomed me on this podcast, and we talked about my salty attitude on Twitter and the way that I market my books. That was that was a lot of fun. We even managed to talk about the Foo Fighters a little bit. So you should check out the Jazz House podcast. If just to hear me, I mean, come on. You come here to, to hear me. Why don't you hear me over there too? Before I get into the Patrick short story, you need to go back and listen to the last two episodes with Jesse and Ellen because this story, Patrick, would not exist without those stories and the experience that I had as a result of turning those stories into a creative writing class as assignments. Now, the story with Jesse is that I was thinking of what I wanted to write for the class before I even took the class because I knew I would have to have some sort of short fiction project. But Ellen was written before I wrote Jesse just for a friend. And the friend that I am referencing is who partially inspired the character of Jesse. Now, if you go back and you read poetry from Cornbread Poetry, you will find some poems about that person in there. I have not read this short story in years. So I don't know what my reaction is going to be to it. I got kind of emotional reading Ellen last week. So you have to have some context other than the other short stories and all the context that I actually give in the short story. I wrote this at the end of 2015 and I turned it into that creative writing course as part of my final project, which I wasn't required to do. I just did it because I wrote it partially inspired by the class my professor told me that I should seek publication for the Patrick short story because she thought it was so good. So I came from a very salty place when I wrote this, but I was trying to reflect on me and where I stood with women at the time because I'm always questioning my place in the world as a man in relation to the women in my life. And I want to make sure that I treat them as my equals and I want to be fair and kind to them because I come from a long history of the opposite of that. I mean, my father, my grandfather, I don't know much about my great-grandfather, but I know about my maternal grandparents and I've heard stories about them. I had started reading Bukowski around this time period. I was questioning my ability to maintain a relationship with a woman, my ability to write from the perspective of a woman, and ultimately that is what makes up this short story. So we're going to get into it. I don't know what my reaction is going to be. I don't know what your reaction is going to be because this is... This might be very dated to 2015 because times have changed 
And my attitude has evolved since then. Not saying that there's anything offensive in the short story, although there might be, I don't know. But it was well received by the people who read it. So I hope that you have the same reaction. Also, if you would like to read these short stories and the other short stories in this collection, the 2020 edition of Disease of Ambition is available on Amazon for 99 cents on Kindle and about $7 on paperback. Creative writing professors say you shouldn't start stories with an alarm sound. Fair enough. It's cheesy, cliche, and overdone. I don't wake up to an alarm on the weekends anyway. Instead, I look up from bed, see if there's any light coming from the top of the panda tapestry hanging over my windows, and I look at my iPhone for the time. There's not someone next to me or waiting for me in the living room. Since last December, I live alone. I haven't slept in the same bed with someone since January, so I'm used to this. In fact, it gives me a reason to get out of my room because it's depressing as shit to stay in here. So, when a woman's standing across the room next to my Minecraft posters, I let out a holler and jump back a little. Okay, I have to stop because of the Minecraft posters. I had a few Minecraft posters. I used to be really into Minecraft in college. In fact, I would spend hours playing it and listening to music or listening to Howard Stern. This was before I was listening to podcasts. But I built an entire city in Minecraft. And just last night, my wife was telling me, you should play Minecraft. And I was like, you know, I feel like I'm done with Minecraft because I built the city that I wanted to build. It's there. There's nothing left to do. I could start on other projects in Minecraft and maybe I will in the future because that game was very meaningful to me. But now it's different. I think I've outgrown it. I mean, she's not the witch from Snow White. She's actually the kind of woman I always favored growing up. Mid-40s, long brown hair, dark eyes, and a slightly disarming smile. But when I see her boots, the paisley skirt, and leather jacket, I know she's exactly that. It's Linda from the short story I wrote the first week in Dr. Umminger's creative fiction class. Okay, so a little background on Dr. Umminger for those of you who are unaware she is a great professor from my college that I went to for undergrad, and she was part of the Harvard Lampoon. She's married to a slightly famous singer who I won't name, but he has a Grammy, and she brought it up in class a few times, so whatever. Her teaching style is laid back most of the time. I had her for two courses, and both courses I got by pretty well without much friction, other than from classmates, of course. I conceived her months beforehand. Since I'm alone, I do things that free my mind and make me feel something other than depression. I write characters who suffer from depression because it's what I know, especially when it's all I've known for the past two years. When I'm in class, unless I hate my classmates, I generally act happy and make everyone laugh. At home, I don't have to act, and I write the way I want without worrying if my professor is going to mark up my paper. Linda's that kind of professor. I was driving around Bowden and Mount Zion a lot at night. 
and I've always had something playing in the background. One night, I wanted something different but familiar, so I grabbed Led Zeppelin's In Through the Outdoor, an album I generally associated with getting laid. Otherwise, I never paid much attention to it. Turns out, I found the album pretty substandard, yet kept listening anyway, especially to Fool in the Rain. And then the scene took place in my mind. For some reason, I saw a woman having a mental breakdown in her apartment with her young lover present. It felt kind of stereotypical like I saw it in a film before, but I could not actually place it. The dynamics between the older woman and young man felt like a wet dream of mine gone wrong. I finally got to be with a beautiful 40-something with her scars, stretch marks, wrinkles, and maturity that I couldn't find in other women I dated. And then she snaps because she second-guesses everything we do. It felt a little on the nose and not enough to build a story on. According to some, what I ended up with didn't make for a story either. My favorite novel is less than zero, so what do I care about story and plot lines? So, I changed it into a lesbian relationship. And I had just ended a brief relationship with a fellow writer, so I had the basis for the younger lover, Jesse. When I heard Dr. Umminger say, I hope you don't think women in their 40s actually talk like this, I knew the workshop would feel like a nail to the temple. I can only surmise Linda's going to complain about me characterizing her so cruelly. Patrick. Linda smiles and nods. Good morning. Some of you might be wondering who the, the inspiration for Linda was. Linda is the combination of two professors that I had in undergrad. I won't say their names, of course. I was attracted to them, as one is at that age. And I had an interesting dynamic with both professors. And one of them I got to know a, a bit more personally, and the other one was slightly elusive, but we talked. So the thing is that I realize now is that professors encounter new students almost every semester. So when a student approaches them and talks to them about anything, the professor is probably not going to remember it for very long. They probably have somewhere else to be, something better to do, but in a sense, the service that they're providing requires a little one-on-one -on -one interaction. But when you take a professor multiple times, of course they'll remember you, but there's a different dynamic. And a lot of times the student wants the dynamic to go beyond just student and professor, not in a romantic sense, you lot of perverts, but just a platonic friendship. And there's only so much that a professor can really give. And sometimes you end up being friends. Sure, there's nothing wrong with that. But you have to realize that this is their job, and you're their student. And that's something that I didn't realize until pretty recently. Anyway, good morning, I returned the gesture. Why are you in my bedroom? Well, you wrote some harsh things about women this semester, don't you think? Oh dear, this again. See, if I were one of my male protagonists, 
I'd have a quick comeback that would sound smart and slightly pretentious, but I'm not like that. Confrontation makes me thoughtful, raises my blood pressure, and I don't want to talk, especially on that subject. After I left that workshop, I felt the same way. My face was probably red because my chest was pumping so hard. When I opened a marked copy of Jesse, I found one student wrote misogynistic after scratching out one of my sentences like an angry news editor. No one ever accused me of being sexist before. I hadn't felt so hurt by so-called constructive criticism since my advanced poetry professor told me no one would publish me. When I left school, I went to my mother's house to talk. I was so distraught she thought I wasn't graduating or had been expelled. When I told her that someone called me a misogynist because of a short story I wrote, she didn't understand. She raised me alone and never got remarried. Because of her guidance, I came to appreciate and empathize with women much more than men, which is true. She read the story and asked if I was the only good writer in the class or something. Mother just didn't see it. I called my dad next. I first had to explain to him what misogynist means, and his instant response was, Is she retarded? I appreciated my dad's unrefined sensibility at that point. He's from the real rural south and speaks his mind, but he didn't understand why I was upset. I don't care what people think about me most of the time, but this was about my writing. I didn't write about this as an assignment. I wrote about it because writing is my passion. Later in the semester, I saw some students threw their stories together almost overnight. I spent hours on this character development, building everything up to this one scene that I planned for months. It took me three days to write Jesse. It accomplished everything I wanted. I'm not sure how you can say that, I say. You're not real. But I'm a woman, Patrick, Linda says. You made me an asshole. I'm sorry. Nah, Linda laughs. Forget about it. As she sits at the edge of my bed, I worry that she's going to freak out at me. I know her because I made her up. Linda is erratic. Intelligent and creative for sure, but dangerously spontaneous. It was a happy accident that she shared the same name with Linda King. I guess since I'm a Bukowski fan, I'm even more of a woman hater. Yeah, so uh, Dr. Umminger is the professor who stated in class that no self-respecting woman would read Bukowski. That's not why I'm here, Linda says. I'm here for you. All right. You got upset because you're insecure lately, right? Every girl you date treats you like shit, and you worry that it's turning you against women. You worry that because you have all these questions about masculinity and what it means to be a man in society, that you might open your mouth one day and all this hate speech against women is going to spew out. Kinda, I say. I don't blame women for my problems, though. Just some people who happen to be women. They don't represent women as a whole. See? Linda smiles. You're already making sense. You don't see people based on their race or gender, right? So why worry? Because I live in the most politically correct nation and go to a liberal arts college where I'm surrounded by feminists. Every professor in the English department features some text we have to analyze through a feminist lens. I don't mind that so much. I want equality for everyone. But when I get interrupted when I'm speaking in a room full of women or feel attacked when I leave a writing workshop, I tend to worry. Maybe it's just the environment. Okay, 
This is true. Every word of that is true. But when I applied for grad school and I was talking to my advisor, who I had as an advisor and professor in my undergrad years, he said, people tend to be more mature in grad school because they're older. A lot of them are teachers who have taught for years and they're coming back to school. So here's the thing. Whenever there was a conflict in a grad class, it was always because of a younger student. Always. So my first grad course in 2018, we had a 17-year-old student in the class. And there were some things that she said that, you know, I let pass. I didn't say anything. But there were other issues with an older student who was very intelligent. He went to Morehouse. He was a professional man. He had been working for years, and he was essentially coming back to get a master's degree. I haven't seen him since, but I got the feeling that he was there because he wanted to be there and not because he felt obligated because of a degree. And there were some exchanges between him and younger women in class that I feel like could have been easily avoided. And it's not that the women who were closer to my age were wrong. It was just that, see, from my perspective, and a lot of people probably disagree with this, but when an older person says something that unnerves you a little bit, as long as it's not extreme, you know, a lot of times you let it go because one day they're going to die and you're still going to be alive and you're going to be around to, you know, have the same experience with the younger generation. I mean, it happens all the time, but we also had an older woman in class who would say things, but no one would say shit to her. And I loved her. I thought she was very sweet. I wish I could see her again. Um, But the older gentleman, for some reason, he got on these two younger women's nerves quite a bit. He wasn't saying anything sexist. I mean, there was a discussion about why Gal Gadot was on the cover of GQ. And he said, I don't understand why any woman would be on the cover of a magazine called Gentleman's Quarterly. That is a magazine for men. And he had a point. It's a men's magazine. And I'm not against women being on the cover of a men's magazine. Uh, Playboy magazine is largely a men's magazine. And for those of you who are unaware of the history of Playboy, it's not just a smut rag. It's actually, it has a long history of publishing well-known writers like Ray Bradbury. And it was kind of a beacon of culture for a long time. And because... Teenage boys would get a hold of it. It has more of a pornographic connotation. And yeah, there are naked women in it, but uh, as I've gotten older, the women in that that magazine barely seem like they're naked because for decades they were airbrushed and then later photoshopped, and they were made to look unrealistic. I mean, it was more like looking at a painting of a nude woman than actually seeing a nude woman. So the younger woman in class got upset with him for saying this and 
she said, Gal Gadot is important because she's the first woman to have a major uh, and well-received female-oriented superhero franchise because Wonder Woman was a big deal. Now, she's not the first actress to play a female superhero on the big screen, not the first to have her own movie, for sure. But that was the argument at the time. And there was another incident with just some other bullshit that had to do with an old picture of this woman who was paraded around as being a freak, even though she was basically a a normal woman who just had some weight on her. But I can't remember the name of that woman. It it wasn't her name name. (laughs) It was a, a nickname that white circus owners or runners, whatever, gave her because they paraded around as a freak, even though she was just a woman who had, you know, some big boobs and a big ass, essentially. Anyway, I got to get back into the story. I got diverted. How are you going to help me, I ask. Go out to the living room, Linda says. There's someone here to see you. I don't like surprise visits. I don't even answer my front door. If someone wants to see me, they call or text me first and come to my back door. If there's someone here unannounced... It's either one of my stalker exes or my mother with bad news. Walking through the hallway like I'm trying to avoid broken glass, I peek in to see a girl sitting on my couch. She looks like the girl I dated in August. When she looks up at me, I know it's far from more sinister than that. Hey, Jessie ducks her head. My blood pressure goes down. Walking over, I get on my knees so I'm below her. With shy people, I often find lowering myself so they can easily empathize with me helps them open up. I might tell them about something humiliating or in the case of the girl I dated in August that I had a huge crush on in our English class but no one ever knew how to approach her. They see past the confident facade and know that a part of me is like them. Hey, I take her hand in both my palms. No one who read the story knew. Despite that Jessie was based on two separate girls that I dated this year, a large part of her came from within. In order to critique the romanticizing of suicide, I drew on my own thoughts and experiences. They didn't know I wanted to die at various points in my life, especially in the past two years. They misinterpreted it as a joke, like I was being insensitive. I'm sorry, Jessie, I say. Why? She looks up from under her hair. A tear stings my eye as it pushes out and forces me to bite my lip as I try not to sob. One of, my, one of the students remarked that the story needed a resolution, but the truth is that there is no resolution. I had been in a relationship like that for years. It was a cycle of being abused and forgiving my girlfriend, and I didn't consider leaving her until I was almost ready to give up my life. Linda and Jesse aren't meant to stay together, but Jessie won't leave her until she's been through much more. No one in class seemed to notice the rape scene either. That was the hardest part to write. I guess because it was between two women, or maybe because Jessie didn't realize that Linda was forcing herself onto her, but it wasn't consensual. It was also a nod at Sylvia Plath, who wrote a similar scene in The Bell Jar. 
because you don't deserve what I wrote you into, I say. You're a beautiful girl, Jesse. If you were real, I'd be lucky to, to know you. Your creativity and beauty would inspire me every day. You're going to grow up to be just like Linda if you don't make a change. But you can't. You don't exist. You're sweet, Jesse smiles. Do you really think I'm beautiful? That's the narcissistic trait coming out. One of the girls I based her on would take selfies all the time and make remarks about how lonely she was, but how no one would make the effort to be her friend. I told her she needed to make the effort too. Friendship is a two-way street. But she responded that she didn't see the point in making the effort if she didn't know anyone willing to prove themselves worthy to be her friend. After all, I tried to be for her as a friend and boyfriend that hurt. Whenever I complimented her, she got so joyful, but when I tried to speak to her like my equal, she either didn't know how to respond or got defensive. I don't want Jessie to be that way, but my cathartic needs as a writer made her a little too into herself. Let me make you some tea, I say. We can talk. No, don't go. Jessie grabs my wrist. The insecurities. That was me. I grew up clinging to my mother all the time, especially after my parents divorced. The poor woman never had time to herself unless I was at my dad's house for the weekend. I followed her all through the house, and I never felt secure without her. When I was a teenager, I would ship myself in my room, and she'd want me to spend time with her. I was too busy with my new girlfriend, who I was with for eight years. I clung to her, too. When Jessie does it, I actually don't mind so much. I never had it the other way around, but I know it's not because she loves me. She doesn't know me. Sweetie, I say, if it'll make you feel better, you can come with me. No, Jesse says, stay here. I don't really mind. She's got those smooth, clear cheeks that frame her distinct lips and brown eyes that I could stare at all day. I was lucky to date some of the girls I managed to attract, and the girl from August was more beautiful and interesting than any of them. Um, in retrospect, that is not true. But looks and intelligence don't give someone the right to be mean. She stood me up on our second date and then insulted me via text. That was the cold, shallow aspect I left out of Jesse. What happens to me, Jesse asked. After the story, I say? Well, you'll eventually leave Linda. Your book will be published, but it won't be a success, and you'll probably meet someone like Ted Hughes who will lure you into marriage and mistreat you until you either divorce him or commit suicide. But I don't want that for you, Jesse. I didn't want it for Sylvia Plath either. I'm not writing because I like happy endings, though. Okay, uh, the point that I made about her meeting someone like Ted Hughes, that kind of actually happened, by the way. Can't you change it, Jesse asked? Maybe you can write about me and you together. I don't know how to write myself, I say. If my male protagonists aren't bitter, they're pathetic. I'm in between the two extremes. And I hate it when people tell me I'm a nice guy. I treat everyone like my equal. If I don't like someone, I don't speak to them. I don't think of myself as nice so much as someone who acts like a human being most of the time. Everyone should. You could do better than me anyway, I say. You're so gorgeous that I wouldn't get anything done with you around. Do you have any regrets then? Not really. I write what I want and feel. 
Every day I'm on my laptop writing to hone my prose, character development, and style. At one time, I did it because I wanted to be published, but that changed over time as I began discovering my own processes, methods, and inhibitions. People usually read what I write entirely different than how I wrote it, so I have to approach writing like my music. When I record an album, I don't record it for anyone but myself. Before anyone else hears a note, I have to love it. I'm not the best guitarist in the world or a well-recognized musician, but if I deem something perfect, then it accomplishes everything I wanted, so whatever anyone says doesn't matter. If I wrote music everyone wanted to listen to, it it would be the most generic shit ever. The same applies to my fiction and poetry. Hey! Yeah, um... At the time when I wrote this, we didn't have the renaissance of poetry that we had later on, thanks to poets like Ruby Cower, who were essentially just writing really generic shit. The thing that bothers me the most is when someone claims that an as aspect of a character or story are not realistic. What the fuck does that have to do with fiction? I don't write reality. I write augmented reality. I don't just pull stuff out of my ass and expect it to work. Every aspect of my work is the result of me obsessing over it for hours, days, weeks, or months. The worst thing another writer can do is totally misinterpret your vision and expect you to listen to them bitch about it. I don't care if someone doesn't like what I write. Just don't think I care about your opinion either. I'm still the same way. I mean... I I don't know if I should keep reading reviews of my work because even good reviews say something a lot of times that I don't like. <laughs> um, I appreciate reviews. I want more reviews for sure. I enjoy hearing what people have to say about my work, but I don't always like how they interpret it. And that's probably going to be how it is for the rest of my life because no one's going to see the things that I create the same way that I do. Do you, I ask? I don't know that I can, Jesse says. I'm sorry if the girls you base me on hurt you. No, ma'am, I say. You can't take responsibility for their actions. Some people are just bad. All you and I can do is follow the golden rule. Could you do me a favor then, Jesse asks? Certainly. Give me a happy ending before you go, Jesse says. All right, I nod. This is the best I can do. I stand, pulling Jessie into my arms, hugging her and bending to kiss her cheek. She feels like a skeleton with flesh next to me. I'm I'm not going to rewrite her story, but I can give her the best advice I managed to scrape together while life seemed to have me bent over a table for years. Opening my front door, I point outside to smile at Jessie, letting her know this is the earnest and not the usual mindless bullshit people spew. If you want happiness, I say, you have to eradicate the people who leech off you like Linda. It won't happen instantly, but if you leave and start now, it'll happen sooner rather than never. Are you happy, Patrick? Jesse asks. No, I say. I'm still working on that. She turns to me and places her hand on my chest for a moment before 
looking down at her feet as she takes the first steps out. I watch her fade away as November, as a November breeze washes all the dead leaves across my yard. And I know she's not real. Jesse's story isn't actually changing, but maybe it's more about me than her. I never felt guilty about how I wrote her, though no one else can see how I love Jesse in spite of her flaws. Linda walks into the room after I shut the door and start wanting that tea I offered Jesse. I'm more disappointed about the tea than Linda being here by now. Of all the female characters I wrote over the years, she has to be the one trying to give me closure or teach me a lesson. I always had trouble writing them, but I never sought to make a statement about women through any of them. Some of them are good, others are bad. Linda is complicated, I suppose. If you were to write a happy ending for me, Linda starts, please, I say, not now. Well, we can talk about it after you face her. Who, I ask, there's another one? You've already forgotten Ellen? I think about the woman who inspired Ellen every day. No, I don't. I spent the two happiest weeks of my life with her. No, I didn't. And the two of the worst. No, I didn't. She was not nearly as redeemable as Ellen. In fact, I created Henry to offset Ellen's negative aspects and make the audience sympathize more with her. They wouldn't so much if they knew about the real woman. Ellen is not unlike a lot of girls in college who end up dropping out and forming a dependence on something, but they eventually pick themselves up and find something to fulfill themselves. I can't say the same for the guys I knew who dropped out. I can barely say it for the ones who graduated. All of my successful peers are generally women. Um, that's true. Most of the managers and bosses, teachers, authority figures in my life have been women. And when I say I think women are better leaders, I mean it. Why do I have to see her, I ask. Apparently, you didn't give her enough of a voice, Linda says. Yeah, I did. She just wasn't an immature brat about her situation. Ellen didn't need to confront Henry over things that happened a decade ago. That's childish and something Henry would do. Instead, she follows the adage, living well is the best revenge. I pretty much tuned out everything people said during the workshop. I knew it would be trite bullshit. Or maybe you just need to confront your feelings about her, Linda says. Where is she, I ask. Your study? I didn't visualize Ellen beyond how she resembled my ex-girlfriend. She was five feet tall, half Chinese, had short black hair, and a bunch of tattoos, tattoos and piercings. I gave Ellen the slightly cleaner look so the audience wouldn't assume that she was a vagabond or something. Whenever a writer gives a character tattoos, it's never an oh-by-the-way situation. It means they're conflicted, bad, or have an identity crisis. Ellen certainly had her conflict and identity problems, but Henry didn't know about them. It's all from his perspective, and he sees what he wants rather than reality. I'm not sure anyone else actually sees reality. We all augment it, in a sense. When I open the door, she turns around with that fucking smile. It feels like a punch to the chest. Nothing makes the struggles of a relationship 
seem more worthwhile than those moments when you see genuine glee on your partner's face. But Ellen isn't like my ex. She's actually a little taller and prettier and definitely not half Chinese. Her skin's too pale. But I realize I must have a thing for women with brown eyes when I see how hers are almost black. I already know about my attraction to brunettes. Yeah, my wife is Italian and is a brunette. Uh, right now, she's not, though. She actually lightened her hair. She's done this a couple of times. And then one time, because of the movie Fighting With My Family, she decided to go black again. And then she was like, why did I do that? And then so she spent months lightening her hair again, and then she wanted to go dark again, and her hairdresser was like, please don't. Instead of greeting me, she runs up and hugs me, affirming that she's a fantasy rather than the reality of my relationship. Ellen, I say. What's up, man? She keeps her arms around me. I'm embracing a fictional character, but I still don't know what to say. It's good to see you, Ellen. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, I say, although I'm not sure why. We sit on the floor across from each other, my vinyl record staring back at me from behind Ellen. There's not much to say, really. I wrote the Henry story for the girl I predominantly based Jesse on, but I was working through the facets of my dead relationship. I knew Ellen's inspiration from high school. We reconnected when I was vulnerable from my eight-year relationship ending. We spent a month together and we broke up because she was having a personal crisis and I was suicidal again, and I took up drinking for a while. Other than the significant pain I endured, it was a short portion of my life that somehow replays in my mind. Uh, the only reason, as I discussed in the last episode, that that relationship was so important to me in retrospect was because of my own failure. It had nothing to do with that girl that inspired Ellen. If you could say something to her, Ellen says, anything. I'm not sure, I say. I'm not vengeful. If I have a problem with someone, I avoid them and might write about it later. But what if she was here now? Pretend I'm her. Despite what I went through, I love that woman. No, I don't. She wasn't good for me. But it's useless to hate her anymore. I gave up on that a while ago. If we passed each other on the street, I wouldn't say anything to her. Better to leave it alone. I don't know. If I saw her again, because, you know, this was my... The 2020 was supposed to be my 10-year high school reunion. If I saw her again, I'd probably be nice to her. I mean, I wouldn't strike up a friendship again, but I'd be nice to her. I don't have anything against her. And a lot of the things that I wrote in my poetry or music or anything that year was, again, a reflection of me. It wasn't her so much. Now... I had problems with her as a person, sure, that's evident, but th those were things that I would have overlooked if we were just friends. Getting on my knees, I walk over to Ellen and smile as I look into those black irises. Like before, I rub my forefingers against her cheek, her giggle reminding me of the first evening in Athens in the woman's apartment. It's something so subtle yet intimate, and she'd never experienced it before. I cared for her in the most genuine way because I didn't expect anything from her. No other guy in her life was like me. I'm flawed like everyone else, but I love unlike anyone I've ever met. 
just like how my depression come, causes me to feel sadness tenfold. My heart ignites and I go deeper and deeper each day I'm with someone. All I want is their presence. Be yourself and I worship your every step. Maybe that's unhealthy. It was. But I won't change it because someone will eventually come along to appreciate it. She did. Um, yeah, so th- this portion of the short story with this paragraph where I'm saying I love someone, as I have discovered, that is an unhealthy way to approach a relationship. And it's not realistic. Love is much different than that initial feeling that you feel with someone that you think is love. And it took me a long time to realize that. It just kind of comes with age, I guess. But I did not love this girl. I just deluded myself into thinking that because of my biological response to wanting to get laid, I guess. But, you know, I wanted companionship. I wanted someone to be with because I was lonely. And you have to fix that yourself. I hope you find out who you are one day, I say. Since I've known you, you've been running away from your past and trying to redefine yourself over and over. You can legally change your name, and I never knew you by your real name. It's always some nickname you chose. You dye your hair, get another tattoo, and try to erase the girl inside. But I wanted to love who I thought I knew you were, but I didn't really know you either. I don't hate you for that. I still think about the how good it felt to kiss you, how your tattoos amazed me, and that night I held you on the couch while you cried. You possess so much beauty, but that's not enough to make a person. Story behind the, the couch scene. Um, the first weekend... This girl and I were together back in 2015. She came to my house, and I pulled out the yearbook at some point, and we looked at our senior pictures and all the people, and then all of a sudden she started crying, and I held her, and she talked about how she wanted to not think about that stuff anymore, even though she was the one who asked about the yearbook. And she said it didn't feel real anymore and she felt so disconnected from that person and those people were so important back then in a sense but they're so far gone now and that she just wanted to you know surround herself in fire or or a, a force shield and my wife's taking a shower right now. It's funny that people have told me that this podcast sounds so professional, and yet things like this happen because on the other side of the wall is the bathroom, and I'm not in a professional recording studio. And I apologize for any issues that you've heard on past episodes, like my wife watching Sex in the City in the other room or something, but... In the last episode, I didn't, I don't know what happened because sometimes I will upload something to, to Anchor and I'll listen to it the next day and I'll hear something and I'll be like, that wasn't in the podcast before. The last episode with 
the Ellen short story, it started out sounding like scratchy and weird. I don't know what the hell happened. I don't know if it was the Yeti. I don't know if it was Anchor. I don't know if it was from converting the wave into an MP3. I don't know. But I, I couldn't fix it anymore. You know, I can't keep all the WAV files on my computer for that long because they take up a lot of space. Anyway, let's get back into the story because this this is just going to have to be how it is. Ellen hugs me again, her heavy breath tickling the back of my neck. She didn't have much of an identity in Henry because I didn't have much of one to base her on. It was easier to write her off as a pothead who might suffer from depression rather than the reality of the situation. Embriating her gave her the excuse to merely exist rather than treat Henry like shit and give him an excuse to cheat on her. I wouldn't cheat on someone for any reason, so I needed to justify Henry's infidelity. He married the woman he cheated with. My perspective on things have changed since I wrote this. Um, yeah, the reasons for infidelity are so varied that I think that more people are coming around on the idea that while it is very wrong to cheat, that people have their reasons for cheating. And a lot of times, yeah, it's just a douchebag who's cheating on his wife she's done nothing wrong or a woman cheating on a man he's nothing he's done nothing wrong but that's really all I should say about it I guess I'm gonna infuriate people ironically I say you're probably the nicest most mature woman I've ever wrote thanks man Ellen says thanks for not making me a total loser either that's what Henry was for I say do you know what you need to do now, Alan asked. I don't know. Are you doing anything later? Because I'd love to get some barbecue with you and watch Pulp Fiction. No, Ellen laughs. Go back out to Linda. You still haven't dealt with her. Right, I say. It was good to see you, Ellen. Bye, you nerd. Linda stretched out on the couch, effectively threatening my domain. That's my goddamn sanctuary, and I allow few to enter. Maybe if she had some barbecue, I'd let it slide. But I decide who gets to eat where I spend most of my free time. If she were anyone else, I'd cook her some tacos and we'd watch Game Grumps together. Two things about this. And I I know I keep interrupting, but that's what this podcast is. Uh, That couch is gone. Um, That couch was brand new in 2002 when my mother and I moved in this house. I kept it when she moved out in 2011. And my wife decided that we needed a new couch in 2018. So we got a brand new sectional in early 2019. And I had to watch the couch that I used to lay and ride on go away on the back of a truck. Also, I don't watch Game Grumps anymore. Game Grumps was a huge part of my life for a long time and I would reference it a lot and there's some stuff from it that is still funny but I outgrew it and I also look back on a lot of the stuff and I don't think it's as funny anymore and I have no use for let's plays sometimes I'll watch gameplay footage on YouTube and I wish that people were not talking I mean it's annoying welcome back Linda says 
I sit on the end of my couch, which I refer to as stage left. Linda's on stage right with her feet touching my thigh. Why can't I write ugly women? They're all attractive. She's well aware of this too. What could I say to her at this point? You can massage my feet if you want, Linda says. If this were a story, I would, I say, even if you are a jerk. Don't you mean a bitch? Linda teases. It's okay. I know you like a bitchy woman. It's nice to have someone as cynical as me who isn't afraid to let go, yes. I don't voice my opinion so much anymore. People find them off-putting. That's part of your act, though, Linda says. What about the real you? The real me would probably put up with Linda's abuse because a part of me is attracted to that. It doesn't validate that kind of behavior. But she wouldn't approach me in the same way as Jesse. The male-female dynamic is different. I can't explain how, but... I think it has to do with Linda having less respect for Jessie and seeing her as more docile because she's a girl. I find that women have lesser opinions of other women, especially the ones that I attract. Uh, yeah, that's true. Uh, every woman I've ever dated has been extremely critical of other women in a way that I've not heard other men critique other men. Uh, I'm not saying that men aren't critical of other men or that women are sexist or whatever, but uh, I, my wife is... She says, bitch, cunt, twat. She says all that stuff. She totally, I don't know what it is, but she is vicious. And I just, you know, I just kind of sit there and listen. Indulge me, Linda says. So I channel my inner Tarantino and take one of Linda's feet and begin to rub her soul. Of course, they aren't pruned with chipped nail polish. Instead, Linda appears to take care of her feet, unlike most people who find them disgusting. You can tell how someone perceives themselves through their feet. It's a neat party trick to be able to explain to a girl what her feet say about her and see how her face lights up when I'm right. I won't reveal my secrets either. Now, tell me how you real, really feel about me, Linda says. If you were real, I'd probably cater your cater to your every whim and work even harder to win your affection because you're older and more refined than most girls I date. You're more attracted to me than Ellen and Jesse because I wrote you as so intelligent yet unpredictable. It's like one moment you'd cradle me like a cat and the next you'd pounce me like a panther. Unfortunately, you're, so, you're also selfish and use Jesse. I have no doubt you treat me the same. Very good, Linda says. But what does that say about you, Patrick? That maybe I'm still vulnerable and maybe I always will be. I love and attach myself to someone because I fear abandonment and I prefer the company of an attractive woman over being alone. I'm just more selective these days. And I know you'd take advantage of that. The sad thing is I wouldn't care. And how does it end, Linda asked. You fear that your age is going to scare me away one day even if it doesn't bother me. Just like with Jesse, really. The scene where you break down happens with me in the room, but you don't try to force yourself on me because you automatically assume that because I'm a man that I'm stronger. You have more respect for me than Jesse in that sense. Then when you finally come to terms with our age difference, I've had enough of your abuse and I move out. By then, I don't care what happens to you anymore. Good boy, Patrick, Linda says. Good boy. She stands, but I remain in my comfort zone. When she walks over to the front door, Linda gazes out the window and no doubt sees the brown 
sees the brown leaves and barren trees as a sign. Will I die alone, Linda asks. I ask that question every day, I say. Will either of us find the person we'll grow old with? I hope so, I say. Goodbye, Linda. The creative writing professors also say you shouldn't end it with it was all a dream shtick. I agree, so let's say this all happened and maybe fictional characters came to life to teach me something about myself. If anything, they ease the bitterness of dealing with creative writing professors. In each of them, I find some redeemable quality that makes me wish one of them would stay. As I return to my reality, I wonder what I'll accomplish as a writer and if I keep going the way I want, will they all eventually see that I'm doing something right? I was a little shit, wasn't I? But my feelings really haven't changed about it that much. I, I think that the, re- the creative writing courses I took were a waste of my time and really a waste of the creative writing professor's time because a lot of the students didn't take it seriously. And uh, the, the point of a creative writing class is not to make you better writers. Um, if I ever teach a creative writing class, I think I want to make that point evident. I have thought about it a lot. And one of the things that I think I want to institute as a rule for those those classes, if I ever teach them, is that um, the only person in the class who can be highly critical of your work is me, the professor. Everyone else has to be cordial and accommodating to everyone else. Because... I really think that college students, despite the fact that we're quote-unquote adults at that age, we're really not. We're not children, but there's a lot of... You know, when you're an early adult and you think of yourself as an adult, you end up doing things that are like caricatures of what it means to be an adult. So people take constructive criticism and they make it about themselves which is a huge problem in these undergrad creative writing classes so the last real creative writing course I took was that fiction grad course in 2018 and the only person who gave me any feedback on my work was the professor which I liked a lot more than the workshop style the rest of disease of ambition for those of you who are interested, it's the paperback edition doesn't have the poetry in it. The Kindle version has the bonus editions that I added in the 2020 edition and the poetry. So the next story is Abraham. Abraham is a short story that is actually a very long character study. And the story and scenes don't really begin until much later. And this was me working through my cousin Isaac's death and dealing with mortality myself. And then there's Greg, which is a nonfiction, even though I present it as fiction. Uh, I'm in it, and it's about this nursing assistant named Greg. And Greg was a really, really sweet guy, and I tried to, to do him justice in this very short story. Because it deals with his death and the way that people reacted to his death and 
the shit that people say about us after we die. And then there's Henry, which... What the hell is this even about? I don't remember this at all. You gotta love how I wrote so much stuff that I can't remember anything. But, um... Henry doesn't seem that much different than Abraham, if I'm being honest here. So, Henry is an actual story that was also inspired by my cousin's death. Abraham is specifically about what happened. The short story Lewis was in reaction to the Louis C.K. Me Too scandal, and I incorporated elements of Brett Easton Ellis and... Charles Bukowski into this character who is in a mental hospital for um, sexual assault. Then there's Melanie, which, Jesus, it's hard to remember what all this shit's about, but Melanie was written in 2014, and it is about a man who is having an affair, and it turns out that Melanie is actually non-existent, and there's a twist at the end of the story. There's a lot more to Disease of Ambition, and I hope that you decide to read the rest of it. But I enjoyed discussing these short stories with you over the past three weeks, and I love and adore you for listening. So, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy weekend, and happy writing. <laughs>